Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. This quote from legendary investor Warren Buffett perfectly sums up the idea of valuation when it comes to investing. The price you pay for shares of a company does not necessarily reflect the value of that company. The company might offer far more value or far less. So today we'll be looking at the concept of valuation when it comes to investing, what it means to say a stock looks cheap or expensive, and the approach we take to try and ensure we're investing in great companies at reasonable prices. All on today's episode of the Stocks and Savings Podcast. Hi, we're Andrea and Jamie, two millennial investors and chartered accountants that are here to help you become more confident about the world of investing and finance. We want to give a disclaimer that we are not financial advisors. Nothing in this podcast should be treated as financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. When investing, your capital is at risk and the value of your investments may rise and fall. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Trading212, for helping us to bring you this episode. Trading212 is an investing platform which aims to democratize investing, and it's also the platform that we have used since we started, but more on them a little bit later on. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to ask you a question. Do you notice anything different about this podcast? Maybe something different about our voices? Maybe the fact that we're not complaining about planes and trains and lawnmowers and shivering in our shed as we record? To be fair, we did get a heater for our shed, so there's that. Yeah, that we left on for 10 minutes and then turned off when we started recording. Yeah, because of the noise that I was making. Oh well. But anyway, the reason that we're not moaning about that is because after two years, we finally got ourselves a studio with actual experts who know how to make a podcast sound good. So we hope that you'll notice the difference and we want to say a huge thank you once again, because without your support, none of this would be possible and we'd still be shivering in our shed. Also, we're actually pre-recording this podcast, so just note that the figures we're using are accurate as of mid-February. And finally, we want to apologize in advance about the fact that there will be quite a few numbers in this episode. We've tried to explain things as best we can, but unfortunately, valuation is a bit more of a mathsy concept, so we can't completely avoid the numbers, but hopefully it's still bearable and you'll still be able to learn a lot from the next half an hour or so. So with those announcements out of the way, let's dive into the concept of valuation. The irony when it comes to valuation is that a lot of people don't feel comfortable with the idea of it in the stock market. And yet we are all making judgments of valuation every single day. For example, the other day we were scrolling through Deliveroo and thinking about getting a takeaway. Eventually, we settled on Wagamama's, decided to get some ramen, and the total cost of the food and the delivery was $35.49. In that moment, whether consciously or subconsciously, we have to make a decision on whether or not the price we had to pay was worth the value that we were getting. We'd be spending almost 36 pounds and in return, we'd get a tasty meal delivered to our doorstep. So not only were we getting a meal, but it was going to be particularly enjoyable and we'd be saving ourselves the time and effort of cooking. Was that worth 36 pounds? To some people, it definitely would be. And to others, it definitely would not. In fairness, takeaways like Wagamama's, they always seem to be more expensive than I think they're going to be. It's so annoying, isn't it? Because I really like it, but it's just so expensive. But anyway, to us, it was worthwhile, although it wasn't an easy decision. So we ordered the takeaway. And that example of weighing up the price you're paying with what you're receiving is surprisingly similar to how valuation works in the stock market. The main difference is how you try and figure out the value that you're going to be getting from making an investment in a certain company. Unlike in our Deliveroo example, where the value came from eating a nice meal and not having to cook, you'll be trying to judge how much your investments could grow. 
by looking at what a company is worth now and what it could potentially be worth in the future. Before we get into how to try and decide what you think a company should be worth, it's first important to understand what the company is worth right now. If we wanted to get our Wagamamas, we had to pay £36. It didn't matter whether or not we thought it was worth more or less. And it's the same in the stock market. It doesn't matter if you think Tesla's share price should be $1,000 or $10. If its current price is $200, that's what you'll have to pay if you want to own it. Now, we're going to let you into a little secret about share prices. They're actually kind of meaningless. Like, what, what's it actually mean when we say that Tesla's share price is $200? Now, we know that shares represent ownership in a company. And so by purchasing one share of Tesla for $200, you are buying a very small piece of ownership within the business. But why would you pay $200? Why not $2,000 or $20,000 or $2? Honestly, it's impossible to know much about a business based solely off of its share price. So we're going to spend most of this episode talking about the thing that actually matters, market capitalization, sometimes shortened to market cap. It's funny because all everyone talks about in the finance world and on the news is share prices, which makes sense because shares are the things that you can actually purchase and the things that rise and fall, but market capitalization is far more important. So what is market capitalization? Simply put, market capitalization is the value of all shares outstanding. And shares outstanding is just a jargony way of saying all of the shares that a company has. See, shares are simply a way of dividing ownership in a company, and most businesses will have millions of individual shares. Our favorite analogy for this is a pizza. Imagine that you have a pizza with 10 slices, and each slice is worth £2. If each slice is worth £2, then the entire pizza is worth the number of slices, 10, multiplied by the price per slice, £2, which is £20. Mmm, pizza. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking far too much about food in this episode, and I've not even had breakfast, so I'm starting to get hungry. But anyway, in the stock market, an individual share is represented by a slice of pizza, and the share price is the price per slice of pizza and the market capitalization is the value of all the slices of pizza. So, the value of the entire pizza. Let's take a look at an example with a company like Airbnb. Now, in order to find these numbers, I'll be using a website called ticker.com, spelled T-I-K-R, but you can just Google it as well, because these kind of figures, like market cap and shares outstanding and share price, they're all very easy to find if you just chuck them into Google. So if I search for Airbnb on ticker and I look at the company overview, I can see that it has a current share price of $158 and it has 641 million shares outstanding. Thinking back to our pizza analogy, that means Airbnb is like a pizza made up of 641 million slices and each slice costs $158. That's an expensive pizza. So how much is the entire pizza worth? Well, Just multiply the price per slice by the number of slices. Or, taking it back to the stock market, multiply the share price by the number of shares outstanding, which in this case is $158 multiplied by 641 million shares. And that number comes out as $101 billion. That number, $101 billion, is Airbnb's market capitalization. It's the value of all the shares in the company. It's the value of the entire pizza. And most importantly, it is the total amount that someone would have to pay 
in order to buy all of the shares in Airbnb and therefore own 100% of the company. This is why market capitalization is such an important metric when it comes to understanding how much a business is worth. It represents the total value of all the shares of a company, and therefore how much it would cost to purchase the entire company. The good news is that you don't need to calculate it every time. Thank God. Most tools like Ticker or Yahoo Finance or Google or even Trading212 will tell you a company's market capitalization. You'll find out later on why looking at market capitalization can be much more useful when it comes to valuation. But in short, it's because we're able to look at the big picture and judge how much the entire business is worth. So now that we know the definition of market capitalization, what is it actually meant to be? You know, why would someone pay $101 billion to purchase all of the shares in Airbnb? The simple answer is because Airbnb is a business and a business that makes money. And if someone bought all of the shares in Airbnb, then they would be able to keep 100% of the company's profits for themselves every year forever. In fact, there is a belief that a company's market capitalization is meant to reflect the present value of future cash flows. But then what does that actually mean, the present value of future cash flows? But simply, the market capitalization of a company is meant to reflect the value of the cash or profits that a company might generate from now until the end of time. Obviously, this is completely theoretical because there's absolutely no way of knowing what kind of profits or cash a company will be able to generate in five years, let alone 50 or more. But it does help you to understand what is used to assess how much a company is worth, the profits that it makes now and the profits that it's expected to make in the future. This is part of the reason why a company's market capitalization and therefore share price can rise and fall over time. If a company is exceeding expectations, then investors might think that the company will now make greater profits for longer, and therefore might be worth more. And so, they'd be willing to buy shares at a higher price, and the share price will rise. On the flip side, if a company is performing below expectations, then investors might think that the company will generate lower-than-expected profits in the future, and so the company might be worth less, and they'd only be willing to buy shares at a lower price, and so the share price will fall. This is why future expectations can be one of the biggest drivers of company valuations, especially when you're looking at the kind of fast-growing businesses that we like to invest in. For example, lots of these companies might not be profitable right now, but they might instead be focusing on growing their business so they can generate more sales and eventually deliver higher profits in the future. But as the future is unknown, it makes valuing them quite difficult. So let's take a look at some of the most popular ways that investors can try and decide how much it's worth paying for shares of a company. Although, we'll get to that in just one minute. If you don't want to pay more than you need when investing, then you need to look at a Stocks and Shares ISA. A Stocks and Shares ISA is a type of tax wrapper through which you can invest up to £20,000 a year and not pay any tax on gains or income. The next 45 seconds are kindly sponsored by Trading212, but we started using Trading212 long before we had a partnership with them. We have had our stocks and shares ISAs with Trading212 ever since we started investing. This is because of the low fees and the wide range of investments available. From individual stocks to ETFs, including Vanguard ETFs, there's something to suit every investing style. Plus, new ISAs opened between January the 29th, 2024 and April the 30th, 2024 are eligible to participate in the 1% cashback campaign, where you'll get 1% cashback on any ISA deposits made in the 2024-25 tax year. 
And if you sign up to Trading212 using code SNSBONUS or through the link in the description of this episode and deposit at least the minimum amount required for Invest or ISA accounts, which at the time of recording is £1, you can get a free fractional share worth up to £100. Terms and conditions apply. Now, there are two main methods that investors can use to try and decide how much they think a company is worth. Absolute valuation and relative valuation. Absolute valuation is a more technical model that attempts to find the intrinsic or true value of an investment based on what we spoke about earlier, the present value of future cash flows. The most famous approach here is called a discounted cash flow model, or DCF, which basically tries to forecast all of the cash that an investment might generate for investors from now until the end of time. Personally, we don't really use this method. We've tried to in the past, But honestly, it's quite complex, very theoretical, and includes a lot of assumptions that aren't that easy to quantify. So we aren't going to go through it in this episode. However, we will leave a link in the description of this episode that shows a couple of simple DCF-like valuation approaches from YouTube. Instead, we prefer to use a type of relative valuation. This works by comparing the company you're trying to value to other similar companies or various historical averages. Specifically, we like to use a multiple-based approach. A multiple-based approach is simply where you value a company as a multiple of something such as the annual profit it makes or the annual free cash flow that it produces, which yes, the profit a company makes and the cash that it generates after all expenses are paid are two different figures. But that's a story for another podcast. Exactly. Why would they make it too easy? But here's an example of a multiple-based approach to valuation. PayPal made a profit of $4.2 billion in 2023, and historically, the company has been valued at around 50 times earnings, which basically means its market capitalization has been equal to the company's annual profit multiplied by 50. Doing the math now, 50 multiplied by PayPal's profit of $4.2 billion would give PayPal a market capitalization of $210 billion if we thought that 50 was an appropriate multiple to use to value PayPal. Spoiler alert, we don't think that 50 is an appropriate valuation multiple to use on PayPal right now, but you understand why a little bit later on. In fact, there is another name for this multiple that we've just used. It's also known as the price-to-earnings ratio, or PE ratio, which is probably the easiest way to get a quick idea about the valuation of a company, although it has many, many drawbacks. The price-to-earnings ratio is basically a number that states what a company's market capitalization is, is a multiple of its profits. For example, Apple made a profit of $101 billion in the past 12 months, and the company's market capitalization is $2.8 trillion. Putting these annoyingly large numbers in a calculator, we can find that Apple's price-to-earnings ratio is $2.8 trillion divided by $101 billion, which is equal to roughly 28. Ah, the beauty of math. Two stupidly big numbers ending up being equal to 28. So we can look at it two ways. We can say that Apple has a price-to-earnings ratio of 28 or that the company is valued at 28 times earnings. They are two ways of saying the exact same thing. So imagine you're looking at a company, you know how much profit it's making, and you want to try and decide on an appropriate valuation multiple you can use to try and decide what an appropriate valuation would be. In this case, what would be an appropriate P-E ratio to use? The short answer is that it can depend on loads of things. In general, an average P-E ratio would be anything between 20 and 25. Any number lower than that might be considered cheap, and anything higher than that 
might be considered expensive. However, there are plenty of drawbacks to using the P-E ratio. We won't dive into all of them, but we've made a list about some of the key downsides to this quite simple metric. First drawback is that it's backwards looking. Remember how the definition of a company's valuation was all based on future cash flows? That's because investing is a forward-looking game. The profits that a company made in the past don't really matter from a valuation point of view. They matter from a company analysis point of view because they'll tell you a lot about what the company is capable of, but you care about the future. And the price-to-earnings ratio only looks at the 12 months that have just passed. There is such thing as the forward price-to-earnings ratio, which compares the company's current market cap to the profit that analysts expected to make in one year's time. But what about the year after that, or the one after that? Finally, a big issue about the fact that it's backwards-looking is that if the company had a great year but is now expected to have a terrible year, then the backwards-looking P-E ratio is only going to take into account the great year that's just gone, rather than the bad stuff that's going to come. And it can make a company look artificially cheap. The second point to watch out for is the fact that it only works for companies that are optimized for profitability. And by that we mean companies that are purely focusing on making as much of a profit as possible, which is not every company on the stock market. A lot of younger and more innovative companies won't necessarily focus on generating as much of a profit as possible. Instead, they might be reinvesting a lot of the revenue that they generate back into the business in order to innovate more and grow faster. So that one day when they do decide to focus on profitability, the company will be a lot bigger and will be able to deliver much higher profits for shareholders. However, the problem with the P-E ratio is that if a company is reinvesting for growth, then right now it may be making a substantially smaller profit than it's actually capable of making, or it could even be making a loss. As a result, the company might have an insanely high price-to-earnings ratio, making it look extremely overvalued, when actually all it's doing is trying to grow and it's capable of being much more profitable than it currently is. In such cases, there are other multiples that can be used to try and value businesses, such as a multiple of the cash that a company generates after all its expenses, which is also known as free cash flow. The third drawback about the P-E ratio as a valuation multiple is that it doesn't take into account future growth. This is similar to the first point, but a big problem is that it doesn't take into account future growth in profits or future decline. Imagine there are two companies, each has a price-to-earnings ratio of 25. The only difference is that one is expected to grow its profits by 20% a year, and the other company's profits are expected to decline by 20% a year. According to the price-to-earnings ratio, both these companies are evenly valued, but clearly investors would be willing to pay more for a company that's expected to grow its profits, and they'd pay less for a company whose profits are shrinking. That's another reason why some fast-growing companies can have very high P.E. ratios and other companies can have very low P.E. ratios, because the market thinks that profits are going to fall. In fact, one of the biggest mistakes that new investors make is they look at something like the P.E. ratio and simply say, oh, that's high, so it must be expensive, or oh, that's low, so it must be cheap, and they invest accordingly, which doesn't always have the greatest success. For example, 10 years ago, Amazon had an insanely high P-E ratio of 500. So a little bit higher than that 20 to 25 average we were talking about. And it might have been very easy to say, nope, too expensive, I'm not investing in it. But that would overlook so many things. 
It would overlook the fact that Amazon was a fast-growing, industry-leading, world-changing business that didn't actually care at the time about making as much money as possible because it was instead reinvesting to fuel its growth. If you had invested in Amazon back then at an insanely high P.E. ratio of 500, your investment today would have grown by 850%. It's also worth noting that Amazon today has a P.E. ratio of just under 60, which still isn't cheap by these standard metrics, but it is a lot lower than 500. That's because companies will generally grow into their price-to-earnings ratio over time as they get bigger and bigger and eventually more profitable, but I think Amazon still has a high P.E. ratio because it has a lot more potential to both grow its revenue and expand its profit margins over the coming decade. Another example of a company that had an insane P.E. ratio is Tesla. I think at some point around, what was it, 2020 or 2021, it had a P.E. ratio of 1,000. But now I think it's more around 50 as well. Yeah, it might be even lower, but I feel like Tesla is a, another perfect example of a company where the P.E. ratio now looks relatively low because the last 12 months were actually pretty good for Tesla. The company did pretty well from a profitability point of view. I mean, it may have been more 2022 than 2023, but the reason that the P.E. ratio is now lower is because shares have fallen because 2024 does not look like it'll be a particularly good year for the company. So what that has done, it's caused its share price to fall, but the P.E. ratio is still judging its valuation on the 12 months that have just passed. I think as well, I mentioned PayPal earlier. Now, PayPal is a company that we recently, in the last, I don't know, six months or so, three months or so, started investing in. And we said how historically it's had a P.E. ratio of 50. I think nowadays it has a P.E. ratio of something stupid of like 15. And the reason that we started invested in it was because we thought it looked too cheap. But we're not saying that we think its P.E. ratio is going to suddenly go up to 50 again. The reason that its valuation has got so much smaller is because investors are starting to fear that the future for PayPal is going to look nowhere near as promising as the past. They think that it's not going to grow as quickly. They think that it's going to struggle to be as profitable as it currently is. And all of this has caused them to lower their expectations, and so the share price has fallen because fewer investors want to buy PayPal shares. And that's why the price-to-earnings ratio looks so low for that company. So it's just another example of how you can't just point to a PE ratio and say like, oh, that looks cheap, so I'm going to buy it, or that looks expensive, so you know, avoid the stock. Valuation is just one piece of the puzzle, and the P.E. ratio is a really simple measure. So you definitely should not be basing investing decisions just off of that. And that being said, I wanted to quickly touch on valuation when you invest in funds. In truth, trying to value stuff like index funds is pretty difficult. We've just outlined all the complexities with valuing individual companies. But when you're trying to value funds, then you're basically doing the same thing to hundreds of companies all at once. All you can really do is compare its current valuation to its historic average. For example, if I Google S&P 500 P ratio and click on a website called currentmarketvaluation.com, it shows me that the average P ratio of companies within the S&P 500 is higher than its historical average. But to be honest, my response is, so what? Maybe the companies are expected to grow their profits at an above average rate, which should lead to a higher P ratio. Or maybe it's as a result of a decade of central banks printing money that has helped to inflate asset prices. Or maybe the market is going to revert to the mean at some point. The truth is nobody knows the answers to these questions. 
That's why when it comes to our investments in index funds, we generally don't look at valuations or trends versus history unless something looks crazy high like the dot-com bubble back in the late 90s and early 2000s. That's why this episode on valuation has been mainly focused on individual companies. Because I feel like you can think about some more specific things that will actually give you a useful idea on the appropriate price to pay. Speaking of which, let's get onto the method we use to value the companies that we invest in. Now, I feel like we've said a lot of numbers so far in this podcast episode, so congratulations if you've managed to make it to this point. I promise there aren't too many numbers left, although we'll probably still run through an example, and so I guess the numbers can never be completely avoided, especially when it comes to valuation. We won't go into all the details on the approach that we take, but we can outline in simple terms what it is that we do. Basically, with a subscription we have on Ticker, which is like uh, no, $16 a month or £16 a month, it gives us access to analysts' estimates for the next three years for things like the revenue or cash that a company is expected to generate. So essentially, we use a combination of these assumptions to forecast the company's revenue for five years into the future, as well as either the profit margins or free cash flow margins, depending on the multiple that we're going to use. Then we look at whether or not we think the company is done growing, or if there's more of a chance for them to continue growing their revenue or becoming more profitable. And we'll assign them an earnings multiple based on the future potential. The higher the future potential, the higher the multiple we assign. There are a couple of other things we do, such as we take into account any cash generated by the business over those years, or if they are issuing more shares, which can have a negative impact on shareholders. But as an introduction to valuation, we don't need to get into all of that. So now let's get to the fun part and go through a real-world example and our valuation approach. Remember, this episode was recorded a couple of weeks ago, so bear in mind that the numbers will be a bit different depending on whether or not the shares of this company, which is going to be Amazon, have risen or fallen over that time period. With that said, let's take Amazon through a simplified version of our valuation approach. And I promise that this is the last time we'll have a bunch of numbers. But on the plus side, it's going to be a lot of them. So enjoy. The first thing we're going to have to do is forecast Amazon's revenue growth for the next five years. Thankfully, I can see three years worth of analyst estimates on Ticker. They expect Amazon to grow revenues by 11.6% in 2024, 11.5% in 2025, and 11.1% in 2026. So on the basis of that, I need to make some assumptions for the two years that follow. It looks as though analysts expect fairly consistent revenue growth, and I think Amazon is certainly capable of continuing to grow its revenue by a double-digit percentage. So I'll assume that revenue grows by 11% in 2027 and 10% in 2028. The end result is that I expect Amazon to generate around $970 billion in revenue in 2028. So that's one important aspect, but the next thing is deciding what we're going to use in our multiple-based approach to valuation. Do we go for a multiple of Amazon's profit or a multiple of Amazon's free cash flow? Well, I'm actually going to do neither and go for a multiple of something called operating income. Operating income is simply the profit that a business makes after subtracting all business-related costs. It differs from bottom-line profit because it's before the impact of tax and other non-business-related expenses, such as interest income and expenses or investment income. Wait, Amazon paid tax? I didn't realize that. Yeah, they're like $20 worth of tax. The question now is, what percentage of that revenue in 2028 is Amazon able to convert into operating profit? 
Well, in 2023, the year that's just finished, Amazon converted 6.4% of its revenue into operating profit, and this percentage is known as Amazon's operating profit margin. Going back to analyst estimates, they expect Amazon to have an operating profit margin of 8.4% in 2024, 9.8% in 2025, and 11.4% in 2026. Clearly, it seems like analysts are expecting Amazon to become far more profitable, and I can completely understand why. The last year or two hasn't been great for Amazon's profitability, as it expanded its delivery network a bit too much during a period where e-commerce sales were not as strong, so in 2021 or 2022, plus they saw substantially higher logistics costs due to inflation and supply chain issues. Plus, its cloud computing offering AWS saw a big slowdown in 2022 and 2023 as companies looked to cut back their expenses. But analysts expect that the company now has plenty of levers to pull to improve profitability. And I agree. So I have forecast an operating profit margin of 12% in 2027 and 13% in 2028. So what does that leave us with? A company in 2028 that's making $970 billion in revenue with a 13% operating profit margin. So by multiplying those two numbers together, you can find our forecasted operating profit for Amazon in 2028, which is $126.1 billion. See, I promised you numbers in this section. The final thing to do is to decide on an appropriate valuation multiple to use. This can often be the toughest thing to decide and it can take experience to get a feel for what is appropriate. Remember, the more a company is expected to grow, whatever metric you're looking at in the future, the higher a multiple you can use. So for Amazon, in 2028, we expect the company to have just grown revenue by 10% and have an operating profit margin of 13%. Personally, we think there's still room after 2028 for revenue to keep growing at a healthy rate of around 10% and for the company to continue becoming more profitable and growing that operating income margin. So we will give it a higher than average operating profit multiple. Now, it's very hard to find broadly similar companies to what Amazon might be in 2028. Yeah, I mean, Amazon's one of those companies that does about a million things, so it is tough to find a comparison. But perhaps you could look at the likes of Apple, Costco, or Walmart as proxies. All of these companies tend to be valued anywhere between 15 and 30 times operating profit. Given everything, I think, it's reasonable to assume that in 2028, Amazon might be valued at around 25 times operating profit. So if we take the operating profit of $126.1 billion and multiply it by 25, that gives Amazon a potential 2028 market capitalization of $3.15 trillion, which is insane. Finally, we'll take this market capitalization and divide it by Amazon's shares outstanding to find the potential share price. So that would be 3.15 trillion divided by 10.387 billion shares outstanding, which gives a final 2028 share price of around $303. Now, this is a simplified version. We do a few other additional things when we value companies that take into account the cash generated over this period or shareholder dilution. Because of the additional things we do, our model forecasts a share price of $325 for Amazon by 2028, mainly because we think the company could generate $455 billion worth of cash over the next five years. If we assume that the company just keeps this additional cash in the business, then it will clearly make the business more valuable. 
So that's the main reason why we get a forecasted 2028 valuation of $325 per share. However, in this example, we will stick to the $303 per share figure that we got from our simplified method. Now, Amazon's share price at the time of recording is $170, and we think they could grow to $303 by 2028. That would be just under an 80% return, or annual growth of just over 12% per year. As a rule of thumb, we say that if the projected return for an investment is 12% a year or more, then it looks fairly attractive from a valuation point of view. And if the projected return is 5% or less, then it looks pretty unattractive from a valuation point of view. So looking at Amazon at the time of recording, with a share price of $170, we would be quite comfortable buying Amazon shares in terms of valuation. Now, before we wrap up this episode, I think it's important to mention the following. Valuation is the absolute last thing we look at when investing in companies. You could give us the cheapest looking company in the world from a valuation point of view, but if we don't like the look of the business, then we're not going to invest in it. History shows that, in general, the longer you plan to invest for, the more important the quality of the business is, rather than its current valuation. I mean, look at Amazon. Its valuation seemed crazy a decade ago, but it's been a stellar investment because it is an incredible business. There are so many similar examples, especially in our portfolios. Shopify, the Trade Desk, Axon. These are stocks that have almost always looked expensive from a valuation point of view, and yet anyone who invested in these for five years or more are sitting on some pretty amazing returns. Our point is that valuation is an important part of investing, but nothing is better than investing in high-quality businesses for long periods of time. It's also worth pointing out that, as you probably felt when we were going through all of the numbers in that Amazon example, there are an awful lot of assumptions that have to go into any valuation models. Do we think Amazon's share will be at $303 when 2028 comes around? Honestly, we have absolutely no idea. They could be far higher, or they could be far lower. All this valuation model does is give us a bit of guidance and understanding when it comes to the expectations for Amazon or any other company at their current share price. And I think there are a few important takeaways that we want to leave you with. One, valuation is important, but not as important as most people think. Two, some people can be tricked into thinking that valuation is an exact science, but it's not. If it was, there would be far more millionaires and share prices wouldn't be as much of a roller coaster. And three, remember that valuation is just one piece of the investing puzzle. And the longer you invest in a company for, the more important the quality of that company is and the less important the price that you paid is. This episode has been a long time coming. I think we've put it off because we know how numbers heavy it can be. And to be honest, when we listen to podcasts with too many numbers in it, we kind of tend to zone out. But valuation is an important part of investing. And we hope that even if you zoned out for a little bit, you still manage to get something useful out of this episode. As always, it would be amazing if you could give our podcast a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Since we are a smaller podcast, these two things would really help us to reach more people, gain credibility, and hopefully dedicate even more resources bringing you a podcast that will help you build wealth while enjoying life. Thanks again to our sponsor, Trading212, and remember to use the code SNSBONUS or check out the referral link in the description to get your free fractional share worth up to £100. Keep in mind that terms and conditions apply to the offer. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait for you to join us next week.
Until next time, bye-bye.